welcome to the very first episode of Looking Closer with Bet Greener. This is a podcast produced by Bet Greener, patent and trademark attorneys based in London and Alicante. Each time in Looking Closer, we're going to be reviewing cases we've been involved in, cases in the news, or changes in legislation around IP, and we'll be discussing some of the issues and implications arising from them. We hope you'll find it useful and interesting. I'm Alison Sweden, Marketing and Communications Manager at Bet Greener, and with me today are two of our patent attorneys who are partners in the practice, Avi Freeman and John Markham. Thanks for joining me, Avi and John. Great to see you today. Thanks, Alison. It's great to be here. Thanks, Alison. Pleasure to be here. So, Avi, what are we talking about here today? Well, Alison, today we are looking at some IP cases concerning the fascinating area of employee inventions and employer and employee rewards and compensation schemes. It's an area that's received a lot of interest recently in the press and the legal world, um, not least because the subject has recently come before the Supreme Court, and that doesn't happen very often. In fact, in the area of employee contributions and inventions in uh, the world of IP, it's never happened before. In the world of IP, generally, it happens very rarely. The broad interest from this case comes from the fact that most of us are employed or employers. And so when we, one way or another, the question about what happens when an, in, an employee invents something has far-reaching implications for many of us. John, Avi has just mentioned the recent Supreme Court decision. Let's start by giving listeners an outline of the facts of this case. Well, legally, this is a case under Section 40 of the Patents Act, which allows employee inventors to to be awarded compensation for inventions if they are of outstanding benefit. Now, different countries have different approaches uh, to, to this. In the UK... Generally, we take the view that an employee inventor's reward is their salary or any bonuses associated with their salary. However, the Patents Act specifies that if a patent is of outstanding benefit, setting a very high bar, then an inventor can be uh, given increased reward. And that's what this case is about. And since the bar is very high, we've seen very few of these cases in the UK, as Avi touched on. Uh, we have the case of Kelly and Amersham many years ago, and now we have uh, Shanks Unilever at the Supreme Court. However, stepping back, let's look at this on a human level. Um, so very, it's been, this has been developing over a very long time. Now, this case was brought before the Intellectual Property Office in 2006. Um, it took 13 years for Professor Shanks to get the decision, the right decision, clearly in his view, um, from the Supreme Court in 2019. Uh, but this actually relates to inventions that Professor Shanks created in the early 1980s. So um, we're talking here that this is case effectively has been going on developing for over 30 years. So the background to this case is that uh, Professor Shanks was employed by a UK subsidiary of Unilever called CRL from 1982 to 1986. Now, he signed an employment contract and it was common ground that uh, under his employment contract and in accordance with Section 39 of the Patents Act, any inventions he created during his employment were owned by Unilever, owned by CRL, his employer. The technology he worked on was blood glucose testing, 
really fascinating area. And what he did, he created a device that used capillary action such that a blood glucose monitor could be shrunk down to be portable and um, be used easily at home and by uh, people that need to monitor their blood glucose. Now, machines existed before this date, but they were generally very bulky and expensive and um, impractical. Being such an outstanding invention, um, CRL made significant money from license fees uh, over the course of these patents. In, in fact, he made around... £24.5 million in licence fees and uh, money from the sale of the patents. Um, this, given that there were very little overheads for Unilever at this point, was, uh, was clearly they, this was almost purely profit. Um, and in this regard, in 2006, Shanks brought this case before the IPO and attempts, you know, on a not unreasonable basis that he should be uh, awarded um, compensation for these patents being of outstanding benefit. Well... Before we go on and I talk about the legal implications, let me just declare a personal interest. As a type 1 diabetic, the technology that underlies the invention in this case uh, was very much life-changing for many diabetics because it makes the whole process of testing blood sugars so much easier. Now, I'm not here to talk about managing type 1 diabetes, but from the real world this and it, we often see this in intellectual property cases because the cases that end up being litigated tend to be, relate to technologies that actually make a difference to people because they matter and that is one reason why this case ended up becoming such a big deal because John has already mentioned the value of the invention was very significant but looking now at the legal reasons as to why we might think the case matters an important point to bear in mind, as I said right at the top, is that many of us, most of us, are either employed or employers, and most of us are employed. What that actually means is that when, um, uh, when you come to make an invention in your job, you might well be of the opinion that you deserve some greater level of compensation for that. And the courts are, have always historically taken quite a hard line on this and the threshold for whether or not you are going to be uh, entitled to compensation has been set very high. Now, with that background, this case was particularly interesting and doesn't work that well on a podcast, but if people can just if, try and imagine what I'm describing now, imagine a graph when you've got an x-axis and a y-axis. And imagine we are plotting on that graph Unilever's overall profits. And, you know, and we're in the realm of orders of magnitude of billions here. And imagine a diagonal line starting about halfway up the y-axis going upwards. I've got a degree in physics. I should have been <laughs> able to say that more quickly. <laughs> anyway, so starting halfway up the y-axis and, and then representing the profits of Unilever now... As I said, if we're talking about billions, that's, uh, that's what that graph is representing. If you then draw on the line which represents the benefit that Unilever derived from the invention that Professor Shanks made, we're talking, as John said, 20, 25 million. That is going to be a line that you could barely distinguish from the x-axis because it's, it's uh, so by comparison to the um, profits that Unilever actually make the contribution from these patents of Shanks was really not very great. Now, 
if you take that view, which is the view that Unilever were putting forward in the in in the case, you end up in a situation where effectively you have a company that, uh, as the judge commented himself, would be you could identify as too big to pay, because effectively you would have a um, a company that, if it makes so much money, it's inconceivable that a single patented invention somehow could make a significant effect on the profits by comparison to the actual profits of the company. And so the um, so why this case matters, I would say, is that it has provided a marker and an indication that 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 the argument that a company can simply be too big to pay is not a good one. John, how did that play out in the actual judgment? Well, it was quite interesting, actually, to look at the development across all of the different cases, starting at the initial hearing at the IPO, going up to the High Court, then the Court of Appeal, and then the Supreme Court. Now, generally, the IPO's role is not to, should we say, push the boundaries of the law. And since this is a very high bar, it wasn't unreasonable that they, in the first instance, came to the decision that... um, that basically the, the invention was not of outstanding benefit because there were so little cases which had succeeded at that point, only one. Um, as we went up through, it was interesting to look at the Court of Appeal because there was, whilst they came to the, effectively agreed with the too-big-to-pay approach, there was uh, a slight dissent from one of the judges who who said, actually, whilst we came to this decision on a number of facts, if we we may well have come to a different view had Unilever been a smaller outfit. Um, And then that sort of propagated into the Supreme Court's decision. So what the Supreme Court, what the real take-home message from this is in the fine detail of how you work out the correct entity to judge the outstanding benefit against. And in this case, well, Shanks was employed by CRL, which was a, uh, essentially a research arm of Unilever, much smaller outfit. Its entire purpose was to generate inventions that Unilever could then exploit. And the Supreme Court said, well, actually, all the previous cases have looked, as Avi said, with the graph of the huge um, turnover of Unilever versus the um, relatively small 24.5 million that were generated from the patents, that, uh, you know, judging Unilever as a whole as a standard to be measured against, the outstanding benefit to be measured against was, whilst accepted by the lower courts, um, not correct in in that uh, we should be looking at actually who employed Shanks, and that was CRL, and that had a much lower turnover. And in the context of the patents generated by CRL and CRL's turnover, the Shanks patents were clearly of outstanding benefit. And I think the real take-home message is you need to look at the entity that's actually doing the employing. And, um, And this doesn't necessarily rule out um, inventors working for huge multinational conglomerates um, from being awarded compensation depending on the business structures and how their people are employed. So John, presumably this won't have been the first case to come before our courts in the area of employee inventions. How does this fit into the area of law from a historical perspective? Well, whilst this is the only the second major case uh, where uh, an employee inventor has succeeded in being awarded compensation for outstanding benefit. There are another number of areas we should look at which is relevant for both employers and for employees. Now inventions under UK law under section 39 and through employment contracts are generally owned by your employer if you are generating invention, if you're paid to invent for example if you're, and you're generating inventions in the course of your employment. 
Now, of course, there are boundaries to that. And there are a number of interesting cases where inventors have been actually the courts have decided that inventors own the patents themselves and they're not owned by their employers. One of the classic cases was the Electrolux Hudson case of 1977, uh, where a uh, storekeeper invented a new type of uh, vacuum cleaner bag um, and um, Electrolux claimed ownership over it via his employment contract, but the court said actually no. The case here is that this, this guy was employed to be a storekeeper. And that was his job. And he wasn't paid to invent, and therefore he should be allowed to keep the invention for himself. It's not automatically owned by his employer. Another case was of uh, Mr. Harris, who uh, was a manager of a Wavalve company. And um, unfortunately, Mr. Harris had just been let go shortly before this invention was made. It has been made redundant. He came up with improved Wavalve in his spare time, and his company claimed ownership of it. Um, however, the courts decided against that and said, actually, no, he'd done this work in his spare time and, and he was an employee anyway because actually he'd been made redundant and he was again allowed to own his invention. It wasn't owned by his employer. The final case we'll look at was the Glasgow Health Board case uh, from 96, uh, which related to a consultant who'd come up with an invention and again, the Glasgow Health Board attempted to claim ownership, but the courts decided otherwise and said, actually, the consultant was paid to treat patients. His entire role was, was medical care. He wasn't paid to invent, and therefore he should be allowed to own his uh, invention. Within that remit, I mean, um, within the context of most people who create inventions in the course of their employment, their employers are going to own them because they're creating inventions in a field that are in, they're employed to create inventions in. Uh, if you have a completely different idea in your garden shed at the weekend, uh, probably it's very likely that you're going to get to own that invention yourself. But often the, there can be some cross-pollination of, of um, technology and know-how which can lead to um, uh, sort of inventions that on the borderline, as we, we've seen with these cases here. As far as the Shanks case is concerned, there was no question that, that the inventions were owned by Unilever and that was never disputed because he'd signed a, he had an employment contract that said so. He'd signed an assignment um, for which actually, until this case, decided he uh, received £100 of reward um, for uh, signing the inventions. Um, it's uh, not quite £2 million, but that was another 13 years away, unfortunately, for him. So no, that was clearly not in dispute at all. Um, but the, the issue here is the high bar for uh, employee compensation for an invention of outstanding benefits. And Avi, can you tell us how the case might be interpreted going forward? Well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing to bear in mind about the decision is that it is a decision of the UK Supreme Court and it relates to UK law. So as far as direct effect in any other jurisdictions, countries, that's not going to happen because countries have their own legal systems and their own uh, ways of deciding these points. However, the UK is very much a, always has been and will always be, a leader in the development of legal thought and jurisprudence. And so we can certainly expect the development of thought to be persuasive in countries around the world. It is worth bearing in mind that in this specific area of law, the approach of different countries is actually quite markedly different. John mentioned it right at the start with respect to some of our continental European neighbours who have a much more defined and codified system which effectively set the bar much lower than what has been set by the Supreme Court. 
Mm. Yeah, that's right, Avi. And it's quite interesting in how different countries have a take on employee invention rewards. Um, for example, France and Germany, um, and Germany, in fact, is codified in law that um, it's always automatic that inventors get compensation for for, in, for inventions created um, for an employer. Uh, and that's often based on sort of market share and profitability and um, revenue, etc. But generally, um, particularly France and Germany, the amounts, uh, the cases tend to be more frequent, but the amounts tend to be considerably lower. Mm-hmm. I think in France, uh, read somewhere, it's around approximately one to three months salary, for example, for, for some yeah. for, for typical inventions, although some are of um, a higher bar than and different, but the UK and actually some other countries, for example, the Netherlands, tend to follow the approach that uh, the employees, the inventors' reward is their salary, and the bar for outstanding benefit is, is set extremely high. But actually, the rewards for that are extremely high as well, as we've seen with the two million pounds that Shanks was awarded. What are the wider implications for employers and employees? Well, I think that what we need to remember from this case is that at the end of the day it was based on a quite narrow set very specific set of facts which have um which uh which which the court decided on and it's not very often that this precise situation will arise again we've got a very big company unilever we've got a much smaller entity crl which actually employed professor shanks and it was within this framework that the that the decision was made. And so with our common law system, it's unlikely that the precise situation will ever arise again. So it's not a case which is going to suddenly have an enormous impact every day on people's day-to-day lives. But it's worth, I think, bearing in mind how Unilever might have approached this differently. This case ended up costing them £2 million. Now, Professor Shanks, who was an engineer and, you know, no doubt, uh, I think there are some numbers in the case, aren't there, about what he was actually earning. Yeah, but, but 18,000. 18,000, 18, and, right. and a Volvo car. Exactly, and a Volvo car. So that's quite good. Though. <laughs> so, so £2 million is a lot of money with reference to that. But nonetheless, perhaps if a more generous invention reward scheme had been in place within Unilever, let's say he would have been given... £10,000, only £10,000, but by the standards of what he was earning, that would have felt like a lot of money. Mm. Uh, then this whole, perhaps he would have been disincentivized to go the whole hog. Maybe he would still have said, well, actually, £2 million, £24 million of benefit to the company is so significant that even though they've given me 10000 it's not enough. But you never know. You know, the, these cases involve human beings and and people react in unpredictable ways and it might well be that had a system been in place to to reward him just in some more recognizable way than and incidentally I should say that you know we've got no interest at all in the in in the case itself and the the the, the parties involved so um it's uh you know who knows what um the, the details of Unilever's employee reward scheme but nonetheless as a general lesson for companies, I would say that having a generous invention reward scheme might, in actual fact, end up be being quite an efficient way of spending money. Mm. I don't have to agree with that, really. I mean, um, happy inventors generally will not bring 
legal claims because you've got to bear in mind although Shanks won it say it took him 13 years mm, of legal yeah. uncertainty and and who knows what he spent on legal fees uh, up to that point um as we know in the UK loser pays and it can particularly the supreme court can be astronomical in terms of uh, costs as Avi touched on about the employers as well, there's not really the, the the case outlines the specifics of uh, what is necessary to to determine accurately the correct entity against which to judge the value mm. of the patents. But I'm not sure there's any advice there for businesses to, for example, go away and restructure or do anything in in, in that vein. It just gives uh, a clearer idea of what's necessary. And we did we did touch briefly on France and Germany and other countries. Mm-hmm. And one of the main differences, actually, on a fundamental level, is that in the UK, the reward is judged after the fact. So we see how much money uh, a company derives from the patent. Um, and then a claim can be brought up to a year after the expiry of the patent. Um, so in general, we're sort of in patents obviously lasting 20 years is a very long time period there. France and Germany, the reward is at the start. So it's a reward for an invention that, that um, is put into a product that makes money. So it's quite different. So what we might see is that there are people that feel that they may be entitled to claims, um, and now the Supreme Court decision has given emboldened them to, to actually say, right, you know, I wouldn't have brought this because I work for a multinational company, and what I made, what the patents made, was small. But now, actually, uh, in, in with a better framework to be applied, there might be a, a stronger chance of success. So I mean, I'm not sure we're going to see a flood of cases, but there might be the odd one. Um, that we start to see coming before the IPO. So, John and Avi, what can we pull together to summarise what we've been discussing? Well, I mean, I would say that the take-home message from if we we take a step back is that the world of IP is quite an important world and the world generally cares about IP because this is a case that has ended up in the Supreme Court. It also shows that it is a very important field for companies to think about and it's not you know sometimes people think that it is some abstract area of law that doesn't perhaps have as much effect as more dare I say mundane commercial law matters but actually in fact given the the fact that people are employed it will have a real effect on people's lives and I think that from an employee's perspective I would certainly say that people should be looking at their employment contracts, seeing what provisions are in place, seeing whether or not there are, you know, making sure you have an understanding about what will happen if you make an invention that produces a patent that ends up being of outstanding benefit to your employer. Because, you know, perhaps being prepared would be helpful so that you hit the ground running when the situation arises. I think that the general point from a company's perspective, as we've touched on already, is that uh, a stitch in time saves nine effectively. And by by having a proper, reasonably generous employee compensation or reward scheme in the event of an invention being produced, is uh, can actually be more beneficial in the long term in terms of disincentivising claims. Uh, like this one that we've seen before the Supreme Court. Mm. So, John, would you like to add anything to what Avi said? I think I'll just echo what we've discussed throughout this podcast, really. I mean, it's just good practice for employers and employees alike to be aware of 
your rights and the developments in this case. And um, you know, the takeaway is message is really the bar is still extremely high. Mm. The two cases that have succeeded so far, one, the Kelly Amersham case, where the patent was critical to the survival of the business. So that's one data point at one end. We've got Shanks Unilever at the other end, which clarifies what outstanding benefit is um, with regard to a larger corporation which has several smaller organizations within it and employing staff there. Um, but the bar is it's still very high. I think that's the law hasn't moved significantly. I think it's been clarified, um, and that really is the role of the courts. That sounds like a good place to park this matter for today. Thank you so much, John and Avi, for taking us through this case. Thank you. Thanks, Alison. Thanks, Alison. We'll have more legal insight and discussion from the world of IP and patents in the next episode of Looking Closer. To make sure you don't miss that or any future episodes, do subscribe via your podcast provider. Give us feedback and suggestions for future conversations via the Bet Greener website. Or if you're looking for professional IP advice, we'd love to hear from you. For now, from me... Alison Sweden, thanks for listening and bye for now.